Remember the words? Roughly. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ignite Radio Live over the four mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. You who are on the road must have a code you try to live by, and so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. And I'm very privileged right now to have, to be able to conduct an interview with two very special people who happen to be my parents, Bernie and Judy Schleter. We are live in Dublin, Ohio. And what prompted this interview actually was a dinner that we just completed right now. So I might put the title over this particular interview, Lessons at the Kitchen Table. Lessons at the Kitchen Table. And uh, it might invite those of you who are listening right now to think of your kitchen table as precisely that, an opportunity for your family to be together. So just start there, uh, that we would gather together, that your family would gather together for a meal, all together at the same time. We know it's difficult. We know schedules are, are rough, but to find that time in a week to gather together. And if you're with your grandparents, you have a special treasure. You have a special opportunity with your kids gathered around to ask questions that can be an occasion of them encountering their history, uh, learning some lessons of life. And I get it. I get that kids today may not be wired for that. They're eager to play with their devices and their gadgets. They're eager to get on with things. But maybe prep them. You know, maybe prep them. And hey, guys, tonight we're going to have dinner, and Grandma and Grandpa are going to be here, and uh, we're going to ask them some questions. In fact, what are some questions you guys might even have? You can even ask some embarrassing questions. What, what was my mom's and dad's most embarrassing moment? Or what were they like in grade school? Come up with some questions. Have them think about questions that might, uh, they might, might be of interest to them. So all of that just to set the stage and say, I was very blessed growing up in a family where we often made great use of our dinner time, din- dinner table time, kitchen table time. Now, what make, might make this relevant to many of you is I grew up in the 70s. I was born in 1967. I am one of seven children, and my parents both very grew up in very faith-filled Catholic homes. Uh, that um, spiritual Catholic uh, climate and was very important to them, and they formed us with th- those values. But something took place, began to take place in the 60s and 70s that uh, radically challenged Catholic culture in homes. That took a lot of parents by storm in understanding how do you be parents. Uh, you had MTV culture, you had a lot of um, influences, um, and as a result, uh, a lot of my peers, again, I'm one of seven children, six boys and a girl, uh, a lot of our peers we saw in the 70s going wayward, should we say. We saw the battle, we saw some real significant things, and it should be significant for our listeners, whether you're a grandparent or a parent listening right now, because this is our era that influenced us. Uh, to this day and are part of our story. Now, in a moment, we're going to, I want to ask some questions and revisit some of 
our story, some of my family's story shared by my mom and my dad. Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. What's the end of this story? The end of the story up to present day is, by God's grace, every single one of their children, my siblings, are committed to their faith. Um, For sure, six of them in the Catholic faith, one, maybe an evangelical, certainly a committed Christian faith, but all of us very committed to seeking God's will and making it present in our homes. I just wanted to add, since uh, Greg has uh, told you that we just finished dinner, I guess you'll have to consider this our dessert for the day. Uh, Greg, to lead off, mom will have much more to say, perhaps, than I, but I think the key here is we experienced as parents a cultural shift in the 1960s and 70s. And that shift was from the former neighborhood kind of life and childhood experience that we grew up with and that we still experienced as newly married parents in the 1960s to what I would call the electronics era that followed and along with the electronics era and the suburban development for uh, people to move into has I think that is the switch that you are talking about that we experienced and you experienced as children. So let's back it up. We were seven children in a very happy Catholic home. We went to Mass. We prayed the rosary. Uh, You know, we were gathered together regularly in prayer. And even you guys were pushing the envelope early on that was unusual in leading us in that thing that only evangelicals did uh, of praying from the heart. So point to make for our audience and hearing as many of you, we were raised in a good Catholic home, Catholic school. So mom, describe for me how did we get from the happy, if you will, Catholic home with our struggles and kids stuff, but into an awareness that we're no longer in Kansas anymore? The Catholic culture was unprepared for the cultural changes that took place in the American family during those days. In the 70s, early 70s, uh, at the time that Roe versus Wade was passed, mm. we had um, already five children who were seven or eight years of age and under, and my husband, Bernie, was CEO of the only Catholic hospital in the community, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. There's kind of a set of characters during that time that I think are extremely relevant. Good parents who live side by side in neighborhoods, good kids going to Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, believing that, that all was well. And in the meantime, there was an insidious undercurrent of depriving children, first of all, because of the drug culture that was insidious as it slipped in, for parents who thought alcohol was a non-drug, non-issue, so it was kind of not, parents did not like the idea of their children as illegal minors using drugs or, or using alcohol, but marijuana became a force, as did other drugs that, that became a part of the reality of their lives. And as parents, we were unprepared, as were most parents, about what was going to happen. So in 1973, living in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, we um, received a call shortly after Roe versus Wade. I, in particular, was asked to come to the Catholic High School, Lourdes Academy in Oshkosh, to meet with Father, and I can't think of his last name, it was Irish, but he invited five moms to come. All of us had already growing families, large families, five children, six children, seven children, open to life, and we gathered in the campus ministry room with Father, who said to us, 
this is a life-changing decision by the Supreme Court, rendering everything that we considered normal now abnormal. And we as priests will do what we're called to do, but we can't do without the laity. I toss this question to you mothers, and some of us had babies in our arms and toddlers around our feet. What will you do about it? We all left that particular gathering deeply troubled because we knew that this was not going to be a project that would end in six months, that this was going to be life-changing if we invested in it. And there were heroes and heroines in that room. Um, we made a decision that's another story about saying yes to invoking the Holy Spirit and asking feeling totally unprepared, having no knowledge of what was happening. But Planned Parenthood had not hit the scene with a big name at that point. So they were also insidious. But we had been becoming more and more aware of the curriculum, the Catholic textbooks, teachings that Catholic social morality. Who be And as we read them, our children, our oldest was only in eighth grade, but as we read through some of the curriculum in early grade school, we began seeing an anti-authority, an anti-Christ, an anti-family remnant that was forming families everywhere. That particular meeting, that particular meeting took us to um, going back to this father, I think it was a Father Carroll, but it wasn't Father Mike Carroll, who's a good friend. Um, and with that, we agreed as a group of five mothers to begin a response to crisis pregnancy. It was at that point, not a room or not a space, it was a, a patch in phone line in which we took crisis calls day and night, 24 times seven. Wow. So that went on for a period of time, and in the meantime, as we recognized that pregnant women needed a place to come, a friend and I, who was actually um, an Anglican, an Episcopalian, also an RN, as, I, as was I, um, felt the Lord calling us to become childbirth educators, to be able to help teen mothers have birth with dignity. And so with the graces of my husband, Bernie, who was CEO of Mercy Medical Center, a Catholic hospital in the community, we began offering um, teen pregnancy birth with dignity classes, Lamaze classes. And the first class we opened for um, pregnant teens had 25 mothers who showed up, mostly from the public school system. And believe it or not, wow. there was nothing in the public school system for pregnant women, teenagers. So the city bus, the school bus, picked them up at the high school and brought them to Mercy Medical Center, where we had the ability to, to integrate to a great degree a code of respect for dignity for themselves, for their unborn children. After that happened, we began doing uh, Birth with Dignity, coaching young moms through their, their pregnancy, and then offering classes afterwards. For moms, we went to Rotary, and, and Rotary supplied a, a program for moms with their new babies that they could get exercise and take their babies in the pool and, and develop programs to help moms be single mothers. So that was ongoing, all supported by Mercy Medical Center. During that time, because of all that activity, and our oldest was not yet in high school, I was asked to, to do some teamwork with some of the Catholic high school retreat programs at the Catholic high school. And it was not unusual as an adult team member during the middle of the night that a teenager would be sobbing, crying, whimpering, to which I would go to the space where that teenager was trying to sleep, only to find out that that teenager had had a previous abortion within the very recent past some of them had had psychiatric care. Some of them, the parents did not know what to do with it. Some of them had not told their parents. And from that retreat, having already recognized the power of the movement toward abortion in, in a momentum that succeeded anything that we had anticipated, we decided to, I wrote a letter to the editor for um, the, or the citywide newspaper offering to make a response to, for those, um, those who had abortion experiences. 
a representative HUD, Housing and Urban Development, had monies. They approached me. We were asked to submit a request for monies for a post-abortion healing program in a community. And because we had to testify before the city council, only to find out that members of the city council were the husbands of some of the women who are now volunteers for the Crisis Pregnancy, our pro-life program, we received money, and that was the start of our post-abortion healing program. Um, that program continued on through the years and um, took on, I hate to say wings, but in, in a way wings. Bernie's blessing during that time also became significant because the Zahalka's Don and Jean Zahalka, the professor I mentioned earlier from the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, suffered a lot. I mean, their houses were egged, their, tar, their cars were vandalized, they were discriminated against, and we started seeing the momentum of evil take on a whole different form than just a quiet change of a Supreme Court decision, which had much more power than we ever understood. One of the things we did learn during those years, somehow we had received a piece of information that had the five-year plan of, of Planned Parenthood. So as we read that plan and we sat down as leadership with this crisis pregnancy program and what was then Oshkosh Right to Life and it became part of Wisconsin Right to Life with Barbara Lyons who really led the track on that and Bernie who picked up some of the activity um, in a very powerful way at the hospital. During that time, we um, began to replicate the plan of Planned Parenthood, which meant that what they did, we corresponded by offering a pro-life response to that and that continued for years. At the hospital at that time, a movie had just been released called A Matter of Choice. Matter of Choice has a long form, which is an hour. It has a shorter form, which is a 25-minute. It was a powerful form. It is still powerful today. And that particular movie is still circulating. And it's, it's interesting because the philosophy behind the abortionist minds, the movie itself actually does not have actors as real-life abortionists, real-life abortion um, counseling programs, which of course are not counseling, the story of women who had abortions and women who opted not to have abortions, that's very powerful. Once having seen that particular movie, which again was introduced by the Sahalkas, Bernie, who was CEO of the hospital, made it a, re a requirement for the department directors for the hospital to offer this as an in-service. So every single department in that Catholic hospital spent time over a period of time in which the, it was their in-service program to watch this 25-minute program. I don't know, Bernie, if you want to add anything up at this point. Let me pause you on that point just for our listeners to kind of get their hands around this. Imagine this. We have Catholic hospital presence in our community, as do many big cities throughout the country. Imagine a CEO in a Catholic institution requiring their employees of this Catholic institution to have familiarity with one of the key defining issues of our day through the form of a powerful film like this. Again, as my mom is saying, an in-service that my dad had asked or requested as CEO, the requirement that those employees became familiar with this issue through this powerful film. They had to view this film. And mom, you had said earlier that this had no small influence on the culture, the spiritual climate of the hospital as a result of seeing that. A number of things happened. As individuals who were department heads and employees caught a sense of the reality of abortion, there was this open spirit, like, tell us more, what can we do? And I would have to take give a bow to Teens Encounter Christ at that time which again, we were invited to become a part of as part of the adult team. This is a program for high school, college, uh, adults, 
to really go through a transformational experience live based on the Paschal Mystery, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Again, some of these same people, initiated and invited by Bernie, began making these weekends, and the hospital was transformed. People would walk into the hospital and say, there's something different about this hospital. At the same time as the hospital was transformed, this hospital is sponsored by the Sisters of the Sorrowful Mother, which is a Wisconsin-based um, or religious order, one of seven hospitals. Greg, I don't know if you recall, but Bart was a sophomore in high school. Bart's the oldest. Greg was probably eighth grade freshman. It might have been junior freshman. I'm not sure. But we at Lourdes Academy, we were very involved as parents, Lourdes Academy High School, asked Mercy Medical Center if they would sponsor a National Pro-Life Coalition Education Day. We did two of them. We did one at Lourdes Academy, bringing in national speakers, and this whole school turned itself over to small groups, breakouts, special areas of interest to teach and form young people in the particular issues of life. And then about a year later, the National Coalition held, was held in Appleton, Wisconsin, with young people coming from all over the country under the leadership of Father Mike Carroll, who was diocesan youth uh, director. And some of our children were very blessed to go off as part of a YMCA, YMCA national government program, youth and government, and held that position as an experience of being in the state legislature, legislature as House representatives, senators, and even serving as governor, which Greg served as governor for that particular event. So the, the message of life continued to become a large message of life. At the same time, Planned Parenthood was not silent, and we began to see the incremental movement of Planned Parenthood through the years. And I'll bring us now to kind of a backtrack for a moment. When Ronald Reagan was our president of the United States, in his final years, and I, as far as I can remember, his entire terms of office was always a defender of human life. We have proclamations of him naming a particular day to celebration of life of the unborn, defense of the unborn that started in 1988. We remember very, very much Greg's wife, Stephanie, who you know from the program and otherwise, remember the March for Life that particular year that um, Reagan had finished office and, and Clinton had been elected. And up to that point, during the major program of the March for Life, President Reagan, though not present, always had a recorded message to encourage and to sustain and support and let us all know that he was where we were in his defense, in his proclamations, and in the ways in which he defended legislation to protect human life. The year that President Clinton was named, shortly after that was a March for Life. And as we stood there, in the group of how many hundreds of thousands of people one by one, we heard President Clinton turn around, change the defense of human life, laws that protected life. Our whole culture shifted in a whole powerful way that has never been reclaimed since that time. I want to back up a second. I appreciate this story um, of the culture with regard to pro-life and your engagement as a leader in a community where there really was no precedent. And uh, so to say that there was really no familiarity, either a culture-wide familiarity with abortion. You didn't have major abortion clinics and such. So that wasn't there either, per se. You had 1973, and there was an awakening on both sides and you, with other leaders in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with my dad, Bernie, you, dad, took the charge and provided sort of an institutional leadership presence that coalesced, uh, you know, moral folks, certainly Catholics, but moral folks around this. So I want to back up, though, and ask the question from the standpoint of what was happening in homes. 
because that is the key thing that maybe some of our listeners are really interested in. How did we go from praying Catholic homes that are generally, you know, we had our issues, you know, we went from that uh, experience and atmosphere to things that were far more grave, far more serious in the home. How was it that many of these families found their homes upended and, if you will, Satan, the enemy, having his influence in decisions that kids were making? And how did that happen, if you will, under their parents' noses? None of us are prepared for a firstborn. None of us are prepared for some of the second or third born. Um, might I suggest that at the same time, all of we as Catholic families who took for granted Mass on Sunday, praying the rosary, oftentimes Mass during the week, uh, talking with our children about the norms of life, we're totally unprepared for the insidious movement of the drug culture, the insidious movement of the messages of the music culture, the anti-authoritarianism, the sexual revolution had begun, sexual freedom was, was prevalent, Planned Parenthood was right there to take care of all of those aspects of the changing culture, and parents were caught off guard. I would say that it was so nuanced that sometimes parents who thought that their children were not using drugs, were not using alcohol, were certainly not sexually promiscuous, became shocked as teen pregnancies and reported abortions were entering their lives. Families who at that point had been considered very pro-life, a daughter was a cheerleader and she wouldn't be able to go to Europe for the summer if she carried her baby to, to term. And so many parents changed coat when the moment came for them to decide, am I going to stand, am I going to stand the call and defend life now that my family is deeply involved in the struggle? I believe that's a struggle for today, is parents sometimes take their children to the clinics to have abortion experiences. The pain is a generational pain now. And so as parents, you do a couple things. Um, when Greg, who's speaking, was in eighth grade, um, we were in a Catholic school, and it was a Catholic school that we valued, we thought was really wonderful, only to find out that one of the teachers who taught science began introducing his class to contraception. And it, we took it to the principal, and she said that he knows what he's doing, he's qualified. We went to the pastor, and he said, oh, it's not a big deal. And after walking the walk on that, sadly enough, we made a decision we never thought we would make. We transferred our upper grade school children into a public school, which had a very faithful Catholic principal, and they were given more pro-life support in that than they were given in their own Catholic school. We began taking a look again at the curriculums. Many of us saw, many of us being Catholic parents at that time, reading the curriculums and tuning ourselves into such things as SECUS, taking a look at how it infiltrated our educational system. And the sex ed programs were the turning point oftentimes for the morality of the kids, and parents were unprepared and unequipped and uneducated about the philosophy and how it changed minds and hearts and souls of their children. So I remember uh, in grade school, Catholic grade school, there's an emergence, or there was an emergence among my peers of sort of a dual culture. There was a culture of the home where we know faith and morals and values were held in, in high regard, and then there was the culture of the playground. And the culture of the playground, kids who didn't have as much guidance or supervision brought a lot of ideas and language. And um, it kind of became, if you will, somehow it just seeps in there and it becomes kind of an occasion of being in or being cool to have knowledge of these things, um, to talk about these things. You know, of course, curiosity 
in that latency period, whatever, fourth, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade, some of these uh, sexuality issues, and you want to know, you don't want to be in the dark. Um, so I recall at that age, you learned, um, obviously, these are not things that you would communicate with your parents. Now, you were way ahead of the curve uh, in asking us periodically or educating us. We didn't learn, if you will, uh, where children, babies came from, from a classroom. We did learn it from you, but most kids would have learned it from the playground. Most kids would have, my peers, and you know, there would have been kind of a, um, if you will, a dirtiness about it. My point is that there became a kind of schism. There became a kind of schism in a, at a young age that you learn to play the game in front of your parents. You learn to smoke screen your parents. They have no idea. And even up until the point of Stephanie and I leading teams of really good high school kids, um, you know, we, we, we knew that these kids were evangelization oriented Catholic kids. We knew their inside stories and we would bet that their parents had no idea of the lifestyles that they were living. Most parents presume their kids are not sexually active, yet the stats reveal an entirely different picture. And we didn't have the proliferation of internet now where you have anonymous uh, pornography, which we all know in our listening audience is an absolutely insidious attack uh, upon everybody, um, increasing numbers of women, certainly men, 95% by the time you're 17 have seen pornography. That didn't exist 30 years ago. So, but my point is when I was younger, somewhere along the line, something cut cut between a parent's leadership in a home and formative culture and um, created this subculture of youth that that somehow Satan allowed to preserve their um, language and their thinking about things and their activity. And I don't know if that ever existed before the degree to which it did. I would say that, that um, and I, my heart goes out to parents who are listening right now and to grandparents, because it was a time of huge isolation huge confusion, in sense of inadequacy, ineptness, and helplessness, and to a degree, hopelessness. Because there was no solid authority, even though the Catholic Church was a solid authority. And it was during that time, I believe, that Familius Consortium was published. It was really informative for us. Uh, and, and we called peers together to study that together. But for the young people, we had to create an alternative. And I believe that the alternative was provided in a very beautiful way by God, because it was also during that time that some of us became aware of the change and the difference between abstinence and chastity. We always equated the two. And then I started doing reading of Familius Consortio and Humana Vitae, and I realized that abstinence, abstinence was used for the use and the stoppage of drugs and alcohol. And then the beauty of chastity. And the chastity is living out our beautiful sexuality and the ways in which God desired us to live it out. That was a whole change agent. And when we started identifying the abstinence programs, which were being offered even in the Catholic school systems, we realized it was inadequate. And again, the Lord provides, he equips us in ways that we have no intention we're going to go. But out of that came by now, we were just in our final years in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and began doing abstinence or chastity-related programming, doing some retreats and some programming, and then we moved to Columbus, Ohio. And as young people learned what chastity was, it went hand in hand with their relationship with Christ because one could not hold it and embrace it. So the, the, the teenagers then, and we were blessed with this house of the six boys and Rachel, their friends were all interested. One of the things when we moved to Columbus, and this is for those who have children right now, teenagers, 
Bernie was CEO of another community hospital at that time. And we were so aware at that point through American Portrait Films, which had some wonderful films for Hell's Bells and satanic activity and just a variety of, of themes. And we would invite our children to bring their friends over on Friday nights. And we would have pizza at our house, show one of those films, and then talk about its impact on them as teenagers. And I can remember to this day, as they're watching this, these exposés of old rock groups that some of them upheld and thought they were great, would say, no, no, that's not our group, no. But this went on for years. And out of this chastity program came a group that we called Jeremiah Ministry. Please read Jeremiah. A one, two through 10. And the group named themselves the Love Team for Life of Virtue Endurance. And they went out as teams then with other team, other parent moderators. This is now Oshkosh, Wisconsin, or sorry, Columbus, Ohio. And the teams went out in one year. We did programs for 56 parishes in the Columbus area. But the kids gave the talks in music. The kids gave the talks in being chased. The kids gave the talks in being pure. By then, Greg was at Miami, and he's bringing Miami kids who came and picked up some of those talks as college students teaching Humanavite as part of their own way of life. So we were covering mid-school, high school, and college because God provided a tool because we knew if we didn't, form an alternative and give them another option for talking through their day-to-day -day challenges, they were not going to be prepared when they walked into those college campuses or high school campuses to deal with the change of culture that was affecting them. Greg, in a, in a uh, perhaps more broad perspective, it occurs to me to offer the thought that in the 60s, 70s, we lost religious teaching in our grade schools and our high schools. Um, an element of liberal attitudes began to envelop uh, the Catholic uh, lay people and church. Moral relativism became rather uh, focused at that point. Numbers uh, falling off in terms of priesthood. Uh, these things put on a great deal of pressure that I think has yet to be completed in terms of dealing with it. The pressure of the education and the teaching of Catholicism and Christian faith for parents of today, parents and children. Consider Judy and I kept with um, the need to address the ongoing uh, development of, Catholic, of the Catholic faith in our home and in our neighborhood and wherever we have lived and gone and we've lived in I think six different communities and we've always carried that with us. That is a gift and a blessing of God but it has lost its focus in the overall construct of the church. Mark your calendar right now for August 13th. Our second Ignite Catholic Family Festival. For a short time, all tickets are discounted at ignitefamily.eventbrite.com. Brought to you by Mass Impact. Greetings to you all in Christ Jesus. I have a rather difficult question to ask, but if considered honestly, it can pave the way to great joy. Perhaps you've heard it before. It's a question all the great saints have asked. When you're on your deathbed, reflecting back on your life and how you lived, what you lived for, what do you imagine you might regret most? Do you think you'll regret that job promotion? Maybe that job you did or didn't get, the money you did or didn't make, or that thing you didn't buy. Again and again, the testimony of those who've been there is none of these things. But their greatest regret is not having devoted more meaningful time to what matters most in life. 
building relationships with family and loved ones. Hey everybody, I'm John Paul Schleter and one of six children, which means we're pretty busy. In fact, one weekend we had eight soccer games, four cross country meets, and a bunch of other events. But you know what the best part of it was, besides mass of course? setting aside time as a family to talk and pray. I want to invite you to go right now to massimpact.us. Check out the Live It Gathering Guide. It's new every week, a great way for families to talk and pray based upon Sunday readings. Your kids will grump at the idea. Expect it, but trust me, it will be the best 30 minutes you will spend in a long, long time. It will help you all experience God alive in your family relationships that make your house a home. I'm gonna make this place your home. Join us now at massimpact.us. Thanks, Mom. That was pretty awesome. Games are something you play with a board, not with a soul. Let's not sugarcoat this. Satan is getting many to join him through a door called pornography. That door is everywhere a device is. The consequences are devastating. They don't sidestep those who go to Mass. In fact, most practicing Catholic men report falling regularly. Many are addicted. Please listen. Knowing all this is not enough. If you or those you love don't have filtering on your computers or devices, you're playing games with souls. You're leaving the door wide open. Please join us now in shutting that door. Go right now to massimpact.us. US. Click on Covenant Eyes. That's MassImpact.us Covenant Eyes. It's a very small price to pay for eternity. Can't change what's happened to now, but we can change what will be. present to both of you a question and see what your reaction is to this. It seems to me you were a generation of what's. You knew the what's of the faith. You knew the Baltimore Catechism. You instructed us in the what's. But what you didn't necessarily inherit was a great ability to address the why's. And so we were a generation of why why this, why that, that really, let's face it, did not emerge. No, it always existed in church history. St. Thomas Aquinas, Answers for the Faith. But that whole realm came about with Scott Hahn and a number of other apologetic apologists who kind of opened the doors to kind of consider it. That's point number one. But point number two is, Mom, as you speak about uh, the great leadership of these teams and inviting young people to communicate this, we know we know as the brothers and many of these team members that there was a profound struggle in um, living it. We could articulate it, we could do this skit. Behind the scenes though, you were not, you know now, but you weren't familiar with the degree to which my brothers and their peers um, really struggled with the live it aspect. And um, I think what has emerged now that perhaps didn't exist back then was this notion of personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was always in our Catholic faith from the very beginning, the patristics, the first three centuries of our church somehow lost that dynamic experience. But it was almost as if we were telling people the what's. We were formed to give people the what's of chastity and abort, whatever these things may be. 
But it's taken us a long time in this uh, unveiling of the Holy Spirit and equipping God's people and his body to truly respond to this, to bring us to a point now with Pope John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and certainly Pope Francis in a lot of ways to awaken us to the capacity to live this, the encounter with Jesus Christ that is a language, and I'd even say with your Steubenvilles, with your Catholic Youth Summer Camps, with NET, with Focus, these to create a culture in the home where we're able to, in every aspect, recognize our radical dependency on Jesus Christ to seek him. And it seems to me, is it fair to say that that is two things? One, very new, fairly new, and number two, absolutely essential if we are going to see families succeed in becoming cultures that form uh, their young people and parents for eternal life. Thanks, Greg. There are a couple a couple thoughts that come to mind. I think you're very correct. It was in the 1970s, about 1974, that I first became aware of and started participating in Charismatic Renewal mm-hmm. in our local parish. From that, we moved into being a part of Teens Encounter Christ, and we brought the teens from there down to some of the Charismatic Renewal Masses to be prayer team for the renewals people were having hands laid on and being prayed over. That was pretty early on. The cultural shift at that time, too, and some of us who are part of, in some leadership role with different programs, that was a time when moms were pretty much at home. The dads were working. Bernie used to say, I minister. I I work so Judy can minister. And I was given the freedom to do that. The, 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 the economics switch shifted. The needs in large families were under pressure because providing for those families. But during that time, it was Teens Encounter Christ, really, that, that begged the question, do you know just about God or do you know him? And a number of our children all have been a part of Teens Encounter Christ. Many of them have met their spouses on that and live out that spirit continue. We, let, we sit back and we just say, thank you, Jesus, because that's how we got to know you. <clears throat> I would love to say this, um, through the influence really of Greg's introduction and reading Sherry Waddell's Forming Intentional Disciples, having read that major question, what is your relationship with Jesus like? Who is Jesus to you? I've tested it. And I've asked from priest to laity to young people, having a casual conversation. And it's a great question because it's a question that is transformational. And once we receive that recognition that oftentimes it's like looking at blank eyes because someone's never in, in, entertained that question, I think the beautiful programs like Alpha and some of the Catholic Youth Summer Camp programs, I think the spirit's flowing through the church, Greg's program, the program of, um, of mass impact and, and what's happening in the formation of families. We lost our formation of families and many times, even way back in forming these young teams in, Ash- in um, Columbus, or, I'm sorry, Cleveland, those children would go home very catechized and very evangelized, and their parents said, that's nice. And I believe still those who are in evangel- evangelical Catholic Christian environments still have teenagers and young people who leave who are on fire for the Lord. They desperately want to share to their, with their parents, and the parents say, that's nice. And the parents will get them there, the parents will support them, but if it interferes with a sports program, if it interferes with some sort of a secular club, the relationship with Christ always holds back. And in that note, early years, as our children were going through this time, we saw the culture as either an invader or an opportunity for us to be a presence for Christ in our children's lives. And we purposely sought 
for the Lord to form us, the Holy Spirit to move us and use us. In many ways, he did that. I remember very well two of the children, I think it was Nathan and Luke, who were on basketball teams on a Teens Encounter Christ weekend. The weekend was already established. They were already team leaders. And all of a sudden, there's a basketball tournament coming up at Lourdes Academy. And we said, what's your first commitment? Are you giving equal time to Jesus? Or are you giving equal time to your basketball games? You have to make a choice because you can't do both. We did do a little bit of negotiate on it. And we allowed for that those moments that um, we would allow if they were primary plays for grandpa, for Bernie to pick them up, bring them back to play the game and come back once in a while. But it was very rare because they knew and we used to say to them all the time, you need to give equal time to your relationship with Christ that you give to your basketball teams. Thank you. Dad, I have a set of questions for you. Number one, how important is it that men are the spiritual leaders in their home? And as a man who's invested in Columbus Catholic Men's Conference, St. Gabriel's Radio, Columbus Right to Life, many men's groups. You have advantage of encountering many men. And let's just say along the lines of our listeners, Catholic men who go to Mass, what's the scorecard? How important is it that men are leaders in their home? And by your appraisal right now, with a lot of experience, how well are they doing? Greg, I was thinking and was going to address that issue before you asked it. We must agree that the family is the core foundation for a good society. And that family situation is dependent upon the leadership of the parents. I have enough age and experience to challenge men and husbands and fathers with this radio cast to consider whether or not the husband and father is stepping up to the plate, learning about the Catholic faith and getting to know Jesus uh, more as, as an outcome of knowing about him, and then taking charge of, if you will, or at least uh, showing leadership in the home with the children, accompanied by the wife, for spiritual environment within the home. I would challenge every husband, father listening right now and ask you the question, husband and father, did you last evening at your dinner table, did you initiate prayer before you ate? And was your prayer more than the ritualized, bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts? But did it include some sense of faithfulness on your part to your Catholic faith, some sense of prayer that would uh, enable your children and your wife to look to you as the leader, the spiritual leader, and take a lead from that and develop that in their own lives as they go forth to their schools and to their work and uh, eventually on to their marriages. I'm going to ask you again, men, when was the last time? Did you ever take the initiative and did you do it regularly? to assert yourself as a spiritual leader. Did you do that as, did you give as much consideration of that as perhaps you have uh, to sports and to television and to other social things that men and husbands are exposed to today? Do you give equal time to bringing the Lord Jesus 
into your home via the dinner table to say nothing about preparation before you all go to Holy Mass on Sunday and preparation before you go to bed in the evening. When was the last time you, father, husband, took the initiative and said, we're going to pray the rosary tonight together in this room and we're all going to participate? Our listeners, you can uh, you tune into Ignite Radio Live over the four stations of Annunciation Radio and uh, listening to my wonderful parents, Bernie and Judy Schleter, and you probably get a sense of the blessing that we've had formation-wise. They have certainly would admit that they have been blessed to grow over the years, but I, have, uh, I can say I've really had these roots really from the beginning, and they really have factored into our massimpact.us. They've factored into this movement inviting families to talk and pray based upon the Sunday readings. You can find out more at that at massimpact.us. It's a transformational experience. Instead of thinking of this as a litmus test of kind of do this, don't do that, and right there is a cultural challenge, right? Because Catholics, we can tend to think, I am doing good things. Yes, I get something out of it, but I'm a good soldier. This is even deeper and richer than that. It is God right now saying, I want to give you the gift of myself alive in your marriage, alive in your family. I want to give you this gift. Do you want to experience God more alive in your family relationships? And the way you do that is by saying, yes, I'm going to go to Mass Impact. I'm going to download the gathering guide. And maybe it's overwhelming. It should be pretty simple, a one-pager. Maybe overwhelming to look at. But the first thing, maybe you'll just set aside that time at the dinner table to talk and pray to uh, read the gospel and talk about its meaning, but even more simply than that, we have something called family fun questions. You'll find them at that guide. Maybe have everybody respect the person speaking. Even that alone creates a culture of respect, a culture of encounter to say, hey, I know we're used to interrupting each other and insisting on our own talking about what we want to say, but let's really kind of tonight at this table listen to the person who's speaking, and here's family fun questions. Pick a number, 1 to 50, and you read that question and let them answer that question. We have been doing that with a number of parishes, and I can say of itself, it is becoming a source of renewal, if not revival, uh, as these families are convinced of God alive with them. And of course, if they're lighting that candle, you see how it's connected to the burning bush, the ignite experience, that these ignites are not meant to be simply you come, you take the candle they hand you, and you bring it up as powerful as that is. Imagine how powerful if you're united with a multitude of others in your parish who are doing this also, bringing their candle that they've been lighting that represents that vitality of Christ alive in their home and bringing that candle to that burning bush and then worshiping our Savior who informs us of our identity, right? All this confusion around us of saying, this is your identity. You are what you eat. Eat this. Eat materialism, you know. Eat lust. Eat whatever. Christ reveals to us our nature, to be, like his, uh, to be like him, self-sacrificing love. It's meant to be the heart of family. Mark your calendar right now for August 13th, our second Ignite Catholic Family Festival. For a short time, all tickets are discounted at ignitefamily.eventbrite.com. Brought to you by Mass Impact. Our church activities can be like matches. We like to light them. They give us a flickering moment of warmth. But are they igniting a fire within our homes? God is offering you and me this gift. He's wanting our homes to be holy bonfires. He's wanting us to discover the power of His Holy Spirit alive in our homes. Go right now and download the free Live It Gathering Guide at liveitchallenge.eventbrite.com. This has been a Mass Impact Kingdom Builders Moment.
Find out more at massimpact.us. This is an Ignite Flash Fire moment. Right now, can you think of one person you know who's struggling, in need of knowing God's love? If someone came to mind, God just spoke to your heart. We're going to light it up right now. Send them a quick message. It could be by Facebook, email, text message. Make it short and sweet. Simply tell them you were thinking about them. You appreciate them. You're praying for them. You're in it with them, that God loves them. If we respond to this simple flash fire prompting right now, together we'll move his kingdom a big step forward. Ignite Flash Fire is brought to you by MassImpact.us. Not just a moment, a movement. We want to invite you to join us every day in setting aside just one minute to pray a simple prayer to the Holy Spirit. Join us now as we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. For ourselves we pray. O most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For all families we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For our church and our parish in particular, we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For our world, we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That's it. Pretty simple, but pretty powerful. Join the prayer at MassImpact.us. Not just a moment, a movement. Can't change what's happened till now, but we can change what will be. So to recap a little bit, we began discussing the importance of talking at a kitchen table, um, learning at the kitchen table, and families being an occasion for all of us to become, as Matthew Kelly says, the best version of ourselves. Dinners ought to be more than just physical sustaining, but a relational and spiritual sustaining, and dads in particular, certainly moms, homes without dads in those situations, but dads in particular set the stage for that dinner to be that. Um, but I, may, I want to make the point that parents, uh, we know this in every community throughout the country, that um, you send your kids to Catholic schools. We know that even if you have the best of teachers forming that environment as best as they can, you know the kids are coming away eight hours of exposure in that culture with a lot of alter alternative, dangerous exposure to things, ideas that are not gonna lead them to Christ. So it is so important that you foster that relationship at the heart of the litmus test. Asking them and opening the door for them to feel comfortable talking about what they're discussing and what, what's going on in that culture. You're with us on Ignite Radio Live over the four stations of Annunciation Radio. We've been very blessed to be with Bernie and Judy Schleter, my beloved parents. And you probably have a sense of the blessing that I have uh, being formed by them and the continuous example. And it brings us up to maybe present day and we'll land on this note. 
Many of you are grandparents and you are troubled by the lack of faith, certainly maybe with your children, but seeing your grandchildren. And um, I want to ask the question of my parents as we wrap this up. What words might you have for Catholic grandparents who are listening right now who are very troubled by their children or grandchildren's lack of faith or lack of engagement, might be inclined to feel that those children are too far gone, may feel that they themselves uh, don't want to intervene, don't want to say anything, certainly um, you know, want to be prudent and cautious, don't want to cut ropes, that whole realm. What advice do you give to those grandparents right now? Thanks, Greg. It's my experience, our experience, that the opportunities to be with our grandchildren calls us to get from a place in which we were raising our children and were so busy during that time to a space in which we honored that time that we could go back to our own kids, sit on our buns on the floor, look them eye by, eyeball to eyeball, and talk with them. Our grandchildren, we get to do this all over now. We have 46 grandchildren. And one of the greatest gifts is to enter and engage them in conversation. And that began really at the dinner table when our own children were at home. The grandchildren are open. They want to hear what you have to say. They may not agree. They may challenge, but the seeds can be planted that we do not know about. And after a while, sometimes we hear them come back saying, I've been thinking about that. And they take on a leadership role in their understanding. And they start reading about what's going on, especially in this political climate that really challenges the presence of God as they're thinking about political candidates, even if they can't vote. To have Just last night, we had a conversation around the two nights in a row with uh, Greg's six children about the characteristics and the climate and what sort of leader America needs in our country. We as grandparents have a unique history that can go back over many generations and many presidents and ask that question, have the children think about it and feed back to us. They're oftentimes in a place in which they teach us insights and give us space and it's exciting. The kids don't get up and leave the table after they put the fork down. They stay and talk and they oftentimes challenge us to give cause for our joy, cause for our concern, cause for our hope. But it's a rich environment of exchange. So grandparents can do that. Take the time and don't think you're, you're old, you're lost, you're wasted, you don't have any wisdom. You were given these years by God to bring you to this point as a sage in your journey and to bring back to these children some of your stories which have many lessons in them, our own failures, um, some of the ways in which the Lord has taught us and the ways in which we've changed. We're not the same people we were at 40 years of age or 50 raising our children. We've learned a great deal, thanks be to God, along the way, and we've made many mistakes. Allow those mistakes as grandparents. The children will love you more for them, and I'll help them to know that they're going to be sinful, they're going to make mistakes, but we have a forgiving, merciful God, and we can forgive our parents. Our children, listen to Greg. He's been very forgiving through these years, <laughs> and with all of our own children. We've, we're in a new stage of maturity, and... I really believe grandparents claim which God has given to you. Know that you're important. Know that you're loved. And if you've not been in a place of these conversations, start reading the paper. Uh, start watching what's going on in the political world. Start paying attention to what you would love for your children to be as they grow into the relationship with Christ and then be that with them. Grandpa, I'm going to give you the final word in this. And my simple question is, what legacy would you like to leave your children and grandchildren? You're both very mindful and speak of it often that you're in the twilight of your life 
Um, you're very um, yes. prayerful. The December of your life you speak of, and you're both very healthy by God's grace and very active in a lot of faith and family endeavors, but you're very aware that we're not meant to be on this planet forever, that this place is meant to form us and make an impression on others to lead them to heaven. So with that in mind, what would you want to be said about by your children or grandchildren about you after you're gone? What legacy would you want to leave? I would like to think that... Uh retirement from work and from career is anything but retirement from spiritual leadership in the entire family that one is responsible for as a grandparent. Speaking for a grandfather, it's important to continue the responsibility that one has to integrate and associate with grandchildren, with children and grandchildren in the continued uh, responsible development of faith considerations and to take initiative, not to leave behind the necessary leadership that, uh, that has been brought to the fore with the children, but to continue to enhance it in the family setting whenever possible and wherever possible. So that this, uh, I think it's quality good to see for children, grandchildren and children to see grandparents continue to read, study, think, talk, and attend to Catholic, Christian, spiritual engagement. I just want to thank you, Mom and Dad, and here in front of our our audience um, express my deepest love for both of you and appreciation for you and uh, encouragement to any uh, parents and grandparents out there right now who are listening that as far as it may seem gone at some point maybe for some of you with your children and grandchildren they're never beyond the transforming loving arms of our Savior and Monica, of course, informs us all of the power of persistence, the power of prayer. And I think even to some extent realize he's the one with the cape. Jesus is the Savior. Uh, certainly you carry a weight, some of you right now. Uh, you bear a weight with what's happening with some of your children and grandchildren. But be mindful, he is the Savior. He has them in his arms in a way that you never can. And what a wonderful opportunity we have through Catholic Radio and these various opportunities to be united in lifting them up, praying for them, and don't give up. God has them in his heart and in his mind, and he's working wonders beyond even the things that we see. If they told you you would cry, so just look at them and sigh. And